Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach the Catholic faith, which has come down to us over 2,000 years from Jesus and the apostles. We want to help you to know your faith, love your faith, and live it with purpose and passion, and even be able to defend it. And on this show, sometimes we have guests who are experts in their field or have stories of some kind or who have written a book. And today we have a guest who really needs no introduction, but we will give one anyways, Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, I am so excited that he has joined us on the show today. If you don't know Dr. Hahn, he was a former Presbyterian pastor who received a triple major in theology, philosophy, and economics from Grove City College, a master's of divinity from Gordon Con. Cornwall Theological Seminary and a PhD in Biblical Theology from Marquette University. He was a former professor of theology at Chesapeake Theological Seminary and somewhere along the line, he eventually found the truth of the Catholic faith and he entered the Catholic Church in 1986. Since then, he has been the chair of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University of Steubenville, which is my alma mater. I I, uh, had my life changed and transformed at Steubenville, and uh, he is also the president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and is the author of more books and CDs sets that I can't even count, Uh, some of them including Rome Sweet Home, which has brought countless people back to the Catholic Church or to the Catholic Church, Uh, his book Hail Holy Queen, The Lamb's Supper, he's written biblical commentaries, concordances, and more. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Hahn to the show. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hahn. You're most welcome, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's uh, my pleasure. And uh, before we get to um, our topic today, which is Mary as Queen of Heaven and Earth from the Bible, Um, you know, that is a question that we often get. How can you call Mary queen of heaven? And we're going to be answering that in this show. But before we do, you have a very interesting story. And I would like you to share maybe just a brief overview of your conversion uh, to Catholicism, because if anyone has read your story in Rome, sweet home, which I will link in the show notes below, they know that you were not only anti-Catholic, but probably of the most anti-Catholic of all the anti-Catholic people, you know, and when you converted, people were absolutely astounded, similar. I mean, this is my own opinion, but similar to how, you know, people were astounded when Paul converted to Christianity. They're like, that's impossible. And so when Dr. Hahn converted, they're like, they had to take a second look. So maybe you can just share uh, a brief overview of how you came to Catholicism from your background. Sure. Okay. So let's divide it up into uh, periods of life. So my first 14 or 15 years, I was a nominal Protestant, a juvenile delinquent, and then uh, an evangelical convert at the age of about 14. And my my youth ministers were turning me on to Dr. John Gershner, to R.C. Sproul. We would drive down from Upper St. Clair, Bethel Park, to the Ligonier Valley Study Center. And so when I got the formation from them, I was not only an evangelical Calvinist, I was also a staunch anti-Catholic. And so uh, I carried that into college. And so Grove City College at that point and still is very reformed. And so I studied theology there, studied Greek and all of that. And then after graduation came marriage. Uh, Kimberly graduated with me. We fell in love and worked together in Young Life. I did Young Life for four years. She did it the last two years of her college years. And then we uh, went up to Gordon-Conwell and uh, studied for three years to get the master's. And I graduated at the top of my class. And after graduation came ordination. And uh, 
really in the second period of my life, uh, I was the pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Fairfax, and I was discovering the early church fathers and how they read the scriptures. And I had my favorite biblical scholars, but generally they were Old Testament specialists or New Testament experts. But the fathers were the bridge builders who really united the old and the new and showed me how St. Augustine puts it so well, the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. And when I saw that, especially with regard to the Passover and the Eucharist and Christ's sacrifice, it just made so much deep sense to me. But I, I realized that reading the old and the new in that kind of unity uh, doesn't just apply to Jesus. You know, It applies to the disciples. It applies to various practices like baptism, the Lord's Supper, the laying on of hands. And so I kept backing further and further into the ancient patristic understanding of this biblical worldview, only to see it becoming more and more Catholic. And so while I was still vehemently anti-Catholic, it wasn't bigotry or prejudice. It was just a profound misunderstanding or a set of misunderstandings that I gradually overcame. And long story short, I stepped down from my pastorate after less than two years. I went in pursuit of a doctorate and I studied under Jesuits at Marquette. And there were four or five of them who were really solid, along with some others too. And so in the mid-80s, I made the decision that I'm going to become Catholic and I'm going to postpone it as long as I can until then I went to Mass. And I described this in Rome's Sweet Home, as you mentioned, and also more fully in a book called The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven and Earth, because not only was my first Mass a kind of eureka moment, it was for me a dramatic series of discoveries in scripture. So for two weeks, I began attending daily mass secretly in a basement chapel uh, at Mar on Marquette's campus and found the apocalypse fulfilled and actualized in the divine liturgy, the Holy Eucharist. And so that really was like pressing fast forward. So instead of waiting four or five more years, it became like four or five more months and so I was received into the church at Easter Vigil in 86. Kimberly came into the church at the Easter Vigil in 1990. At that moment, we were also moving our family from Joliet, Illinois, to Steubenville, Ohio, where we've now been for 32 years. We've had six kids and now 21 grandkids. And one of our sons, Jeremiah, was ordained last year. So Father Jeremiah is a priest for the Steubenville Diocese and we're grateful and proud of him, but of all the others as well. So that's it in a nutshell. Wow, that's that's a wild ride. And I remember, uh, I believe it was from your story that you were really you didn't hate Catholics. You just thought they were wrong, and you didn't, you know, necessarily hate Catholics, but you hated the church because it was leading people astray. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you even ripped up a rosary from uh, your grandmother, I believe, and maybe broke a statue of Mary just because you thought it was leading her to hell and you were concerned for her. Am I remembering correctly? Well, you know, on the one hand, yes. When she died, she was a devout Catholic, the only devout Christian on either side in terms of our grandparents. Um, and I respected her. She was so quiet. She never talked about things. But when they gave me her rosary, I did. I tore it apart. I felt like they represented the chains of superstition. If only I could have liberated her from them and I just tossed them into the waste can there in our basement. On the other hand, no, I never broke a Marian statue. What, what, what I did do was to feel guilty as the morning paper boy, you know, who was delivering papers around 5, 5.30 a.m. As I would pass these Catholic houses, 
uh, with these statues of Mary. I remember feeling like Elijah would not be so cowardly. You know, he would tear down the idols of Baal. And so why am I so afraid? Well, you know, it would have been a criminal offense, and so I never did it. But I always <laughs> had that sense that this would be pleasing to God. And of course, I'm ashamed, and I'm sorry. But it illustrates to me, even now, how many people in good faith, or at least how many people could pass a polygraph in saying that it really is something that is not only false, but reprehensible. And for me, of all the Catholic things, you know, you have the Eucharist, you have the Pope, you have the veneration of saints. But, you know, to put it uh, succinctly, Mary, Mary seemed quite contrary to everything I found in Scripture until I began to read the old and the new in harmony. And so over the course of time, I realized, okay, these are misunderstandings. These are distortions. You know, I opposed Marian doctrine and devotion for the simple reason that it, I was convinced that it detracted from the perfect work of Christ, our Redeemer. Likewise, I would say that what, what Catholics were doing was not only subtracting from Christ's redemptive work, they were also adding to it. They were saying that Mary is needed in order to merit and all of these other things. And of course, you realize that the Catholic Church's teaching is not always the same as devout Catholics' understanding or presentation or style. And I'm not saying that, you know, I blame Catholics, but I would say this, that once I read the early church fathers, once I read the official church teaching, once I read Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, the final chapter, the climax of which is on the Blessed Virgin Mary, it's explicit. The Blessed Virgin Mary does not take away anything from Christ's redemptive work, nor does she add anything to it, because she embodies the perfection of Christ's saving work. Everything she is, is the result of Christ, her creator, and Christ, her redeemer. So if you want proof that Christ's redemptive work is perfect, with all due respect, don't look to Brian or Scott. Look to the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's exhibit a proof positive that not only is Christ's redemptive work perfect, but that work is not just for her to hoard for herself. No, she's a mother. And so she longs to give that fullness of grace to us. And so bottom line, the fundamental conclusions that I reached were threefold. First, let's acknowledge as Christians that she is, above all else, the model disciple. Be it done unto me according to your word. No questions asked, no hesitation, freely and fully. She gave herself to the Lord when the angel called her. The second thing I would say, oh, and by the way, the idea that she says, uh, do whatever he tells you to the servants there at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. You know, she's the model disciple as well as the model apostle, getting others to do God's will like she did. The second principle is that she is the mother of God. This is declared to be dogma in the Council of Ephesus in 431. But when I went to evangelical college and seminary, it's what we were taught, just like the Nicene Creed in 325. And then the Council of Constantinople adds the section on the Holy Spirit in 381. So the heretic Nestorius is condemned because he said, Mary is only the mother of Christ, not the mother of God. Well, Women don't mother bodies, human bodies. They mother persons. And so 
the third council at Ephesus in 431 declares Mary to be the Theotokos, the mother of our Lord, the mother of God. Not at this, not in the sense that she's the origin of God, obviously, but she is the bearer of the second person of the Trinity, who is the Son of God and God the Son. And so just do the math. It adds up. For Protestants and Catholics, the second point is she's the mother of God. And if we're looking for a text, you know, I think of Luke 143, where Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? At which point Mary did not correct her kinswoman and say, oh, no, I'm not the mother of your Lord. I'm just the mother of his human nature. No. So we have scriptural support. And the third thing I would say is this, the third fundamental point that we all should share in common as Christians, whether we're Catholic or Protestant or independent, non-denominational, and that is that Mary truly is the masterpiece of Christ. He is her redemptive artist, and all of us are works in progress, but none of us exhibit the perfection of our Redeemer the way she does. And so if we were to go, you know, to visit an art gallery and, you know, a observe all of the amazing works of this exceptional, this extraordinary artist. In fact, he was to be there. He shows up. Would he feel slighted, insulted, or detracted if you went down the hall instead of just looking at him, talking to him, you were observing all of the different works that he did, and then you stopped and you spent even more time than anyone else on that one masterpiece that he poured himself into? No. In effect, you're basically acknowledging that your work is amazing. And in this case, it's not for yourself. It is for us because you made your mother, our mother at the foot of the cross. Behold your son, he said to the woman. And then he says, behold your mother, he says to the beloved disciple. And all of us are beloved disciples. And so, you know, when you add up model disciple, when you add that to mother of God, and then you add that to masterpiece of Christ, you, you, you really discover what I discovered, and that is, you know, again, this is something that all Christians share in common, that everything we do, everything we believe is for the greater glory of God. AMDG, you remember, Brian, one of the households on campus, the Latin phrase, all for the greater glory of God. But when St. Bonaventure reflects upon what that means, and the Catechism quotes St. Bonaventure, how does God glorify himself in creating and redeeming the world? Because he doesn't create and redeem the world to get more glory than he already has, because he already has glory to an infinite degree. You can't add anything to his infinite glory. So what do we, what do we mean when we say God does all things for his glory? Well, St. Bonaventure says he does it not only to manifest his glory, but to communicate it. It's not just manifesting his glory like some divine show-off. Look how much glory I've got. It really is the perfect, all-powerful love of God that manifests it, and then it communicates that glory to us, first in the form of grace, and then when that's perfected, we enter into glory. Now, how much glory would God be willing to share? You know, 70, 80, 90%? No, I figured if he's all love, he might be willing to consider sharing a hundred percent. Well, if you look at me, if you look at my family, you'd say, well, you know, it isn't evident that he's willing to share all of it. But when you look at the Blessed Virgin Mary, you realize, okay, 
not only is he willing to share all of it, he's capable of downloading all of his divine glory so that she is the fullness of grace. Even the angels are in awe of what God has done in this lowly servant. You know, if it's true that God's power is made perfect in weakness, then her own meekness, her own humility, her own acknowledgement of herself as the handmaid of the Lord, you know, and in the Greek, the, the term is really a female servant or slave. Uh, that kind of humility becomes a, a magnet for the fullness of grace and then eventually the glory that she has now. So that when we look at her, we join with her in saying to God be all the glory. So he gives it to her through her to us. And ultimately, Christ says, I made my mother. I redeemed my mother. I redeemed her from sin, not actually, not after she committed actual sin, but preventing her from doing it, you know, and so you stand back and you realize that, wow, the, the, the person and work of the, of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christology as we call it, and the person and the work of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is a creature, a human, but these two go together, and in 431 AD, as my Baptist Calvinist professor, Dr. Roger Nicole said, a high view of Mary, the church discovered, is the only way of maintaining a high view of Christ. And the higher view you have of Christ, you're going to end up with a higher view of Mary as the mother of God. And, you know, when, when all is said and done, you begin to realize, you know, these are not just truths. These are more like dominoes. You know, <laughs> Once they start to fall, you know what direction they're falling in. And so, you know, I, I end up becoming a Catholic with great resistance, with great reluctance, and then eventually with great joy and great humility, um, because it was the last thing I ever expected, but it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, because it's the fullness of the faith. It's the fullness of God's family. He's a father sending a son, pouring out the Holy Spirit, who overshadows the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that we don't have a motherless home. We really are a complete and perfect family. And uh, yeah, you know, that's the foundation. I just poured all of the concrete that I've got. But on the other hand, since we probably have a few more minutes, I should indicate that because I started off my, my, my journey of faith as a devout evangelical Bible-believing New Testament Christian, it was incumbent upon me to find proof of these sorts of things in sacred scripture. And at first, you know, in high school, I would ask my Catholic friends, you know, where do you find a proof text for her immaculate conception, her bodily assumption, or as you have proposed, we discuss her heavenly queenship. And of course, I'd get blank stares from my Catholic friends. And most of my friends were Catholics, but I mean, I respected them. Uh, I mean, for one thing, they were the only ones who could out drink me and out swear me before my conversion. And after my conversion, they would allow me to kind of pick on them, even though I knew, and they did too, that, you know, biblical illiteracy was sort of their stock and trade. Later on, of course, I stand in awe and respect of Catholics because over the course of centuries, the celibates, the monks, the bishops, the doctors of the church have made more of a lifetime of study and prayer than I could possibly do if God gave me 10 lifetimes. And so, the second stage for me was what we would call biblical typology or Marian typology, because you don't just find proof texts in the New Testament. 
as Dr. Roselle said to us in Gordon Conwell first semester, you know, to take a text out of context and use it as a proof text is a pretext. And we all laughed, but I laughed while I was squirming because I was thinking, wait a minute, that's what I've been doing in high school and in college, just kind of lining up proof text with all of the doctrines that I believe in order to prove them. And so in discovering that you've got to take a text and look at it in context, clearly the context is not just the paragraph the sentence is in or the chapter, it's the content and unity of all of scripture. It's the, it's the canonical context. And so what I found in the early church fathers is that they were always reading the new in light of the old and then reading the old in light of the new, just like Jesus and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who for hours and hours, mile after mile, Jesus decides to spend his first day back from the dead, Easter Sunday, leading one extensive Bible study based on the old and the new. And then that night he shows up in the upper room where the 11 disciples are to conduct a second one. So for me, the takeaway was obvious. <laughs> Jesus prioritizes the necessity for understanding the new in light of the old and understanding how the old is like a story in search of an ending apart from Christ's death and resurrection. It doesn't make much sense, but then suddenly the fulfillment goes beyond the wildest dreams, the highest hopes of the most devout Jews. And then it takes centuries for the church to really digest the bread of life that you find when you're reading the Old and the New Testaments together. It took me months, it took me years, but in the process, I discovered that the three primary ways in which Christ is prefigured in the Old Testament, at creation, he's the new, he's at, you know, at creation, you have Adam, and Christ ushers in a new creation as the new Adam, the last Adam, as Paul calls him in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. But likewise, the second mountain peak of the Old Testament is the Exodus, when Israel gets its identity, its existence, its freedom. And then you have Moses, and Jesus is clearly the new Moses, bringing in a new Passover, a new Exodus, a new law, a new covenant. And then the third mountain peak, perhaps the most towering of the three, would be the kingdom, when God raises Israel and Israel's king over all of the other nations in the son of David. And Jesus is that even more than Solomon. So he proclaims the kingdom of God as the son of David, as the son of God, as the Christ. And then when you go back and look at it more closely, you realize that God did it not just through Adam, but Eve. And so Christ is the new Adam, but the early church fathers recognize her as the new Eve. Likewise, God did it through Moses, he was the instrument of the Exodus, but the Ark of the Covenant was, in a certain sense, the symbol of God's real presence in the midst of his people, and so you will find in the New Testament how, in Luke 1 especially, Mary is depicted as the Ark of the New Covenant, deliberately echoing what we find David doing with the Ark of the Old Covenant in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, in that and then as you move from, as I discovered, moving from creation, Adam and Eve, to new creation, the new Adam and new Eve, to the Exodus, Moses and the Ark, to the new Exodus, the new Moses and the new Ark, and then finally the kingdom, you have Jesus as the son of David, the new Solomon, but the day that Solomon was crowned and enthroned and anointed in 1 Kings 2 verse 19, he issues his first royal dictate. His decree is to bring him a throne and then 
and basically enthrone his mother as the queen mother in Hebrew, Gebirah, in 1 Kings 2.19. And it's not just a, you know, a one-time thing. It's a permanent fixture in the Davidic kingdom, not only for as long as Solomon's mother lived, but in the succession of Davidic kings, you have a succession of queen mothers. So when Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord to give an oracle to the king, so often we hear, say to the king and to the queen mother, thus saith the Lord. In fact, the only chapter of the Hebrew Bible I discovered that was really written by or derived from a woman was Proverbs 31, the climax of the book of Proverbs, which is written by the queen mother of King Lemuel. And so even after the Davidic kingdom is destroyed, God has promised to restore it. And you find that in the opening chapters of Matthew with the Davidic genealogy, Jesus' royal pedigree. And so he proclaims the kingdom of God as the son of David and Matthew. But Matthew is sure to, to show you that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the queen mother, the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Emmanuel, God with us. And when you go back to the context of the Emmanuel oracle in Isaiah 7 through 12 and look at Isaiah 7 closely, you realize what Matthew must have realized, and that is the virgin there is clearly the figure of the queen mother who gives birth to the son of David to bring about the divine restoration of the kingdom of David. And so only when you read the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old, do you realize, okay, her immaculate conception, well, Adam and Eve were conceived without, created without original sin. We all agree the new Adam is without original sin. So how fitting would it be for the new Adam to form his own mystical bride, his mother, the new Eve, to share in the same gracious prerogatives? Likewise, what happens to Israel when they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, you know, Moses dies, but the ark remains. So Joshua takes the ark across the Jordan. And then the ark narrative basically is the trajectory that leads to the establishment of the kingdom. And so you can see how when Solomon, when David and Solomon ascend to Zion to establish the palace and the kingdom and to build the temple, you also have prefigured the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you also have the coronation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, prefigured in Solomon's mother, enthroned and crowned in the earthly Jerusalem, which is the human capital of the prototype of the kingdom of heaven. And, and you know, it, it's sort of, um, I want to say it's like a puzzle, but it's almost like playing three or four dimensional chess because you realize that none of this is plan B. You know, it isn't like God saying up in heaven, what am I going to do? The first parents fell. Oh, I've got a good idea. I'll do it through Noah. Oh, no, he's drunk in chapter nine of Genesis. I'll do it through Abraham. Oh, no, he has Hagar as his concubine. You know, you know so we're on plan D or E or no, this is plan A. You know, God lets us have our way in our pride until finally we desire his way. And we discover that everything that had happened before was not only permitted, but a providential prototype of what he had in store all along. So when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, the Blessed Virgin Mary would shout, amen, louder than any of us. And so, you know, I come full circle once again. She's the model disciple. 
She is the mother of God. She is the masterpiece of our redemptive artist. She doesn't take anything away from Christ. She doesn't add anything to his redemptive work as though it was incomplete. She embodies the perfection of his redemptive work. And it's not individualistic. It's not isolated. She's a mother to him and to us. And so, you know, how good can it get? It's almost as though the good news is too good to to believe. But I mean, that's exactly why the Catholic gospel didn't subtract anything from what I believed as an evangelical reformed Protestant. If anything, it didn't just add a few additional doctrines. It was like a, a multiplier exponentially. The good news just got so much greater that you just want to stand back and say, to God be the glory, to God alone be all the glory, because I am convinced that by affirming these truths about Christ and Mary, we end up giving not less glory to God, but far more. Wow. Thank you for all that. Um, And if people want to know what it's like to take a class with Scott Hahn, (laughs) this is what it's like. As soon as I stopped, I'm like, Brian, is so- <laughs> nobody else is. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's just every single day in your class, my mind, my, my hand would smoke because I'd be trying to write this down so fast and my mind would smoke. and be like, how does a man fit so much in his head? And it's all beautiful. So thank you for sharing it. <laughs> I used to joke about being the fire hose until one of my students said, oh, no, take off the hose. You're the hydrant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, we definitely appreciate it. Um, can you, uh, you know, talk briefly about, um, you know, our topic today is Mary is queen of heaven and earth. Um, you hinted at it and maybe you could talk a little bit more about, uh, Mary as the queen of heaven and earth and why Catholics believe that. And is there a biblical basis for it? Yeah, I believe there is, you know, I've, I've already traced the outline of Marian typology, which is clearly subordinated to Christological typology. That is, Christ is obviously the main event. And so Christ is the means by which God is glorified. Uh, All of creation and redemption is for Christ. In uniting our human nature to himself, he imparts his divine nature and nothing less. So for us as Christians, especially for us as Catholic Christians, it's not what we're redeemed from primarily. It's what we're redeemed for. I mean, we're redeemed from sin, from guilt, from damnation, and from hell. And if that's all redemption was, that would be a boatload of good news. But if we're redeemed for rebirth, regeneration, adoption, to share Christ's divine sonship, to actually be divinized, theosis, It occurs through kenosis, through the self-emptying of Christ. But if what we're redeemed for is to become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, you know, then suddenly we realize, okay, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the instrument by which Christ the new Adam ushers in a new creation through a new Eve, giving consent to untie the knot that the first Eve tied. That's Justin Martyr in the second century. That's Irenaeus also in the second century. And again, to to reaffirm, to reinforce the second Marian type, that it's Moses who brought about the Exodus through the power of God, but through the Ark of the Covenant that in a certain sense survives Moses and even goes beyond Joshua until David and the son of David. So you see that 
Jesus is the new Moses, giving us the new law, the Sermon on the Mount, the new covenant. It doesn't abolish, but fulfill the old. But he doesn't do it alone. You see in Luke 1, as I mentioned, all of the archetypology that even a number of Protestant biblical scholars recognize and affirm. But really, since we're talking about her queenship, the third and final type of Christ and Mary is Solomon, the son of David, the first individual in the Hebrew Bible to be called the son of God, the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. And yet his mother becomes the queen mother, which wasn't that exceptional or strange because in the ancient Near East, there are other kingdoms that have monarchs, but the monarch doesn't rule alone, but the Blessed Virgin Mary is, in a certain sense, the queen of heaven. But you have, besides the mother of Solomon, many other monarchies had queen mothers. In fact, it's somewhat of a commonplace in ancient Near Eastern kingdoms, dynasties, and monarchies. So if you take these three sets of typology, new creation, new exodus, and new kingdom, you're going to discover what I discovered that at the end of, uh, well, put it this way, at the middle point of the apocalypse, in at the end of chapter 11, in Revelation 11, verse 19, you have a statement, a declaration by the prophetic seer, the prophet John. In verse 19, we read, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And it's hard for me to convey to our viewers what a stupendous piece of information that would have been to the Jewish Christian readers, especially because the Ark of the Covenant had gone missing, literally for centuries, ever since Jeremiah took it out before the Babylonians could destroy the temple and desecrate the Ark. And this is the basis for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, what Harrison Ford is finding in the Ark. But of course, it was lost and never found. What John is describing is not uh, a box made of acacia wood covered with gold containing the word of God in stone tablets. He's describing how the heavenly temple, not the earthly, in the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly, is revealing this, the Ark of God's covenant, the Ark of the New Covenant. And, you know, Jews would be just stopping in their tracks. They would be breathless. Where is it? What condition is it in? How do we fetch it? This is the Ark of the Covenant. Well, yeah, but more than that, because in the next verse or two, he goes on to describe a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. That's fine. That's a beautiful sign, a woman. But go back to the ark. You just changed the subject. No, he didn't change the subject. He didn't change his lane. He's talking about the ark of the new covenant. In this case, she is the woman clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. And she's crowned with 12 stars, and she's crying out, giving birth to the male child, the Messiah, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, straight out of the Davidic Messianic, Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. And then the ancient serpent is attacking her. Just as the ancient serpent attacked the first Eve and Adam and took them out, only now the ancient serpent is attacking the new Adam and the new Eve, and he is defeated and cast out of heaven. Likewise, you have the new Exodus, the Lamb of God, the new Passover, but along with that, you have not only the new Moses leading a greater and new Exodus, but the Ark of the New Covenant, and you have the Son of David, the Son of God, the King of Nations, 
in the heavenly Jerusalem, and you also have the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and she's crowned with 12 stars. What are those 12 stars? The zodiac? Hardly. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. And so she is the queen mother of the son of David, who is the king of Israel and of all the nations. And so you have this typological trifecta. You have this convergence. You have the coordination or the triangulation of the three primary Marian types that I found, New Eve, Ark of the New Covenant, and the Queen Mother of the Son of David, in the most unexpected way, suddenly, this thing is not only true in a two-dimensional sense, that the words on the page are real, suddenly they pop off the page and practically become three-dimensional, almost like that old you know, magic eye art in the 1990s, where if you look at it properly, it suddenly becomes three-dimensional. Now you see that this woman is obviously a type of the church, and in a certain sense representing the synagogue, but the church is called to be a virgin bride, utterly pure, as well as a fruitful mother. Well, how can you be both a pure bride and a fruitful mother? Well, there's only one woman who can answer that, and that's the Blessed Virgin who is a virgin from beginning to end, but she becomes a supernaturally fruitful mother, our mother in the order of grace, in the family of God. And so what you find here is what the early church fathers found. They weren't debating it. They were celebrating it. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a controversial editorial. It was in their homilies and in their hymns. And when I discovered all of this, again, it just takes the gospel to an entirely new level. It's like the good news on steroid, only it's safe and utterly legal. You know, that's very interesting that, you know, you see it clearly in Revelation 12. But what I think is very interesting is that some people just say that Mary is deified by making her queen of heaven or, you know, we're putting her on par with Jesus, when in fact, it's as simple, it's as, simple as the Old Testament kings had their mothers as queens all the kings in the line of David had their mothers as the queen. And Jesus is a king in the line of David. And so his mother would be the queen. It has nothing to do with adoring her or worshiping her or elevating her to a higher status than Jesus or anything like that. I mean, I think that's so biblically simple and it makes sense. That's right. Okay. So if we look closely in the fourth century, you're going to see in St. Epiphanius's work, the Panarion, the uh, medicine chest, a long list of various heresies, including the Coloridian heresy. We don't have much primary source material about the Coloridians, but the heresy of the Coloridians was a kind of excessive maximalism because they offered the sacrifice of the mass to the Blessed Virgin Mary and were condemned universally by the Catholic Church. Why? Because the virtue of religion is an expression of the justice we owe to God and that which we give to God and God alone is sacrifice. And of course, the word in Greek for that is latria. And if we give sacrifice to any creature, even the greatest creature, that is essentially idolatria. We give dulia, that is we give honor to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But when we do that, we're just imitating Christ. Christ fulfilled the Ten Commandments better than any of us but the first three relate to God, the last seven relate to humans, and the first of the seven is honor your father and mother. And as you probably know or remember, 
The term for honor, kavodah in the Hebrew, means to take the glory or the honor that you have and return it to your father and mother. Well, that's what God does to his heavenly father, but he does it to his earthly mother as well. So if Christ is keeping that commandment better than anyone, we're imitating him, not only by honoring our father and mother, but by honoring his mother with the same honor that he bestowed upon her. We don't want to honor her any more than he did. I'm not sure we could. We also don't want to honor her any less than he did. So the radical form of discipleship is the imitatio Christi. We imitate Christ by loving her as he did and still does, by honoring her as he did and still does. And so there really is a sense in which we do not worship her. We do not offer sacrifice to her. But I would say this, that as a Protestant, my worship did not consist of sacrifice. For us, the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary was over and done. It was a thing of the past. And so sacrifice was really, it ceased, it desisted. The only sacrifice we would speak of is you know, the living sacrifice of offering our bodies. And it's really an ethical metaphor for living a life, you know, in obedience to Christ. But if there's no sacrifice, what did we do in our worship? When I was a Presbyterian pastor, we sang to God. We prayed to God. We talked a lot about God. And since Protestants see Catholics singing to Mary and praying to Mary and talking a lot about Mary, well, that is the same as worship. Well, yeah, it's the same as Protestant worship because it doesn't involve sacrifice. I would propose that the Eucharist has to be a sacrifice when Jesus instituted it. If it was just a farewell meal, then Calvary was just a Roman execution. The only way that Calvary becomes more than a Roman execution, more than a, a heroic martyrdom, is by looking at Good Friday in the light of Holy Thursday the way St. Paul did. In 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, he says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the feast. He's connecting Thursday with the Passover to Friday, which is the sacrifice consummated. If the Eucharist is just a meal the way Protestants believe, then Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is what Paul declares to be the new Passover, then that sacrifice is initiated in the upper room. It's consummated on the cross, and then it's commemorated in the memorial meal that Jesus commanded, do this as a remembrance, do this uh, in memory of me. In the Greek, anamnesis translates the Hebrew zikaron, and that's the technical term for the sacrificial offering known as the memorial. It wasn't just reminiscing of something in the past, it was bringing something from the past into the present, and Christ, our high priest in heaven, is offering that sacrifice we're not repeatedly sacrificing Jesus in the sense of crucifixion. You can't repeat something that is never ending. And if Christ is a priest forever, he's offering his own glorified body in heaven forever to God for us and offering it to us on God's behalf in Holy Communion. So we're not sacrificing Christ over and over again. No, he is offering himself. And again, you can't repeat what is never-ending in Christ's priesthood and sacrifice are never-ending. He's a royal high priest, and just as Solomon had his queen mother at his right hand with this queenly throne in the earthly capital, the earthly Jerusalem, so the greater than Solomon has a greater than Bathsheba at his right hand, 
forming this amazing union of covenant love that he calls us to share as we discover that God is Abba Father, but the Blessed Virgin Mary is his Mama Maria, but also ours as well. It is so deep, it is so theologically profound, and yet it doesn't just fill the mind with blinding light, it also fills the heart with a burning fire. You realize that when God is described as a consuming fire, it isn't about the burning wrath as much as it is about the burning love. His love is so much more than we can imagine, and she embodies that more than I could believe for many years. Mm. Uh, last question, um, which has to do with this, but a lot of people think that uh, the Catholic Church um, has, con they conflate the fact that in Jeremiah 44, uh, pagans used to worship a queen of heaven. So they automatically just say, well, Catholics worship a queen of heaven, so therefore they must be the same thing. But are they really the same thing? Yeah, I mean, the pagans are basically following the deception of evil spirits, and the evil spirits are like apes. They're monkeys. They don't make things up. They don't create things out of nothing. They look at the work of God, take credit for it themselves, and then mime it. They, they imitate it. And so you'll find that pagan kings call themselves sons of God, and they also saw themselves as reigning on earth with the authority of heaven. Well, were they? No, of course not. But did the devil begin to crack the code of the covenant that God had in store? Yeah. So what does he do? Offer counterfeits. But it's not just the king as the son of God. It's going to be the queen as the queen mother, the queen as the queen of heaven. And the idea that you're offering bread to her, again, you know, this is a perversion. This is a counterfeit. You know, all of these pagan myths are distortions and counterfeits. But a counterfeit is a counterfeit of some kind of real currency. That's what the Catholic faith is. It's the divine currency of true divine sonship and true heavenly queenship. And so let's give the devil his due. He was totally successful for many centuries in many cultures when it came to counterfeit religions. But let's give the Lord all of his due, which is infinite, because he is the only one who creates out of nothing and redeems us by his omnipotent grace and his power to make us holy is greater than our power to sin. And so to him be all the glory. You know, he has saved me from sins that I've committed. He saved the Blessed Virgin Mary from sin, sin altogether. And so is she redeemed if she is sinless? She is the most perfectly redeemed precisely because she's sinless. And as such, she is the reality of the Queen Mother, the Heavenly Queen that the pagans perverted at the instigation of the deceiving spirits. Yeah, and we really could say that, you know, um, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Hindu scriptures, is called the Lord. He's the only, you know, the Lord. Jesus is called the Lord. There, oh my gosh, Jesus must have been taken from Hinduism. I mean, I feel like in some ways they're, you know, conflating the two in the same way. This is a good point. I mean, as an evangelical, I was kind of afraid of studying comparative religions. You know, you go back to uh, James Frazier's book, uh, 10 volumes, The Golden Bough, written at the beginning of the 20th century, to show all of these parallels with Ishtar and, you know, and, and so he had lost his faith. And so he spent his life showing all of the parallels between Christianity and pagan religions. More recently, Joseph Campbell, the masks of the gods and so on. And so once you become a Catholic, you begin to realize that myth becomes fact, as C.S. Lewis puts it, that these pagan myths are really watered down, stripped down versions 
of what the devils are watching. They're looking over God's shoulder and saying, okay, what is he up to? What is he going to do? What is he going to fulfill? And let's try to preempt that by mimic, you know, mimicking, aping it, you know, so as to confuse and to corrupt. And, you know, the light has shown and the darkness has not overcome it. And so I think the best way to study comparative religions is to recognize how truth is distorted through heresy and false religions can embody those distorted truths. But invariably, we shouldn't be surprised to find parallels, convergences. We should be shocked if we didn't find it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've shown today that the belief of Catholics, the theology of Mary as queen of heaven comes from the Bible and not from a pagan myth. So I really want to thank you for coming on to our show today and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with us. And as a personal note, I've, I've met Dr. Hahn a few times at different conferences, and he really is one of the most intellectual people I've ever met. He's definitely a world renowned speaker and teacher and theologian, but he's also one of the most humble people I've met. I mean, if you meet him, he really does care for souls and he really does love the Lord with all his heart. So we are extremely Extremely grateful to have you on the show today, Dr. Han. Thank you for joining us. Well, first of all, you're so welcome. It has been my joy, a singular joy. Second of all, Brian, thank you for all you're doing for Catholic truth. And third, may the Lord continue to bless and multiply your tribe so that you get more and more viewers. And we come to share more and more brothers and sisters in the family of God. Amen to that. Come Holy Spirit. And uh, thank you all for watching our show. Uh, I will link a lot of the books and uh, the website for Dr. Han if you would like to check out his work, if you would like to read his articles, if you would like to buy his CD sets or his books. They are a wealth of knowledge. We just uh, really just scratch the tip of the iceberg here today in this show. So I will link all of that down below. And if you would like to follow us on social media, if you would like to follow uh, us and support our ministry on Patreon or PayPal, it is all down in the show notes below. Thank you all so much for watching. Please keep us in your prayers as we are always praying for you. May God bless you.